Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So today we are talking about Bitcoin and joining us for that conversation, delighted to have Joss North from Ruffa. Joss, welcome. Hello. Hi, Joss. Welcome to the show. Before we kick off with the main discussion, would you like to just tell us a bit about your role at Ruffa and, and what that involves? Sure. So I'm an investment director at Ruffa on our um, institutional team. And I'm also co-manager of the Ruffa Absolute Return Fund, which is one of our flagship in investment funds. And for your listeners who don't know much about Ruffa, we're a single strategy investment house. And that strategy is multi-asset, absolute return with a focus on capital preservation. Fantastic. Well, we're certainly going to get into that again in a second. But before we, before we do, perhaps you can share one thing we ought to know about you that we won't find on your LinkedIn profile. <laughs> well, yeah, unfortunately, my LinkedIn profile is not as up to date as perhaps it should be. So I, I suppose a professional thing that you won't find on my LinkedIn profile is I'm also a member of what is Ruffer's version of an asset allocation committee. And then a, a sort of semi-professional thing is I was also the captain of the Ruffer cricket team to, to captain us to our vict- first unbeaten season when we could all play cricket in those days. <laughs> back in back in the day. Yeah, ago. back in those yeah. days. <laughs> Brilliant. An unbeaten season is a, is a record to be proud of, for sure, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Cool. Okay, well, let, well, let's turn to the question at hand then, and, and, that, and that's Bitcoin. You want to dig into to a bunch of stuff around the investment thesis and practicalities in the future and risk and all those sort of things. But why don't we just take a step back and frame things very quickly. Give us a quick overview of Bitcoin as a sort of a, an asset as you see it without dwelling on all the technical details, and maybe we can give some references to people who are interested in reading more. Yeah, sure. So Bitcoin, what it effectively is, is, is a decentralized piece of software that for many performs the function of money, but we don't necessarily think of it like that. I think simplistically, it's a digital monetary asset. So think of it like a, a monetary commodity, a bit like gold, except it's digital rather than physical. So you don't face all the costs of, of storing it and, and that sort of thing that you face with the physical asset? Exactly, yes. You don't face the cost of storing it. It's more easily verifiable. It's portable. But effectively, it plays that same role, we think, as a monetary commodity. And we think it will play that role in the future, like gold has done in the past. And it may be a store of value through time. And we think that's especially important now, which I'm sure we'll come on to, as we think we're going to go through a period of deepening financial repression, which will force investors and individuals to look out and search for those stores of value. Just before we, I guess, as, as we're still sort of defining Bitcoin, just give us some figures. So what kind of size is the market? How many players are in the market? What are some of the key players? It's very big now. So Bitcoin itself as an asset class is now worth about $700 billion. In terms of key players, there are lots and the highest amount by number are individuals. But I think the important players from the investment case to think about is, is really to split it into institutions, sort of hedge funds, corporates, and then and then retail investors. Institutional wise, you've got people like Fidelity, JP Morgan, who are working to bring sort of institutional grade custody and institutional grade investment solutions to the market. Hedge funds, you've got famous hedge funds like Stan Druckenmiller, Paul Tudor Jones, they've made their positions public. On the corporate side, you've got companies like MicroStrategy, and Square are using Bitcoin as a treasury asset. And then 
for individuals there are lots of individuals who who use bitcoin for for various reasons but in terms of sort of retail products the most prominent one is is the grayscale bitcoin trust so that's effectively like in the uk an investment trust it's us listed and that's now worth 22 billion dollars so that's almost three percent of of the Bitcoin market cap. Cool. And of course, many listeners might know this, but but of course, you, you yourselves, Ruffer, have had a reasonably, what ended up being a reasonably highly publicized investment into Bitcoin in your multi-asset funds, of course, which I guess is a large reason why we thought it'd be so interesting to talk to you today. But should we pivot at that point to the talking a little bit about the investment thesis of Bitcoin? You've already laid out some of the facts that led you to, to do that, but why don't you give us the full sort of case as you, as you saw it? I have to provide a, a sort of little bit of Ruffer context. Oh, please. Yeah. Because... For us, this plays a role. You know, Bitcoin could potentially play a very important role in our in our multi asset portfolios. So, if we go back really since our inception in 1994, pretty constant theme has been the build up of debt. In the 2000s, we were worried that that build up of debt would be resolved in a deflationary bust. We positioned ourselves for a def- deflationary bust in 2008-2009, and then really from that point, when we saw the actions of central banks and, and governments. We pivoted and realized that the most likely resolution of this generational build-up in debt would be inflationary. So position the portfolio to benefit from financial repression, inflation-linked bonds and gold were the main assets in that environment. And they've done well over the past 11, 12 years without inflation. So financial repression is interest rates held below the level of inflation. And our view is that in that environment, inflationary risk is what you need to protect against in multi-asset portfolios. Those assets have done well, and they protected us from inflation that hasn't come about. Now you fast forward to today, and not only is financial repression set to continue, but it's also going to deepen to allow economies to afford not only the existing debt burden, but then the incredible extra debt that's been taken on this year. So we're convinced that the inflationary endgame is coming and it's close and importantly so you have that backdrop but it almost more importantly is that the investment landscape and traditional portfolios are about as vulnerable to inflation as they have ever been so you have equities at not record but close to record valuations and a lot of that is predicated on low discount rates forever bond yields at multi-century lows 17 trillion of negative yielding nominal debt that's government and corporate so the investment landscape is so vulnerable to this singular risk that we think is coming and in that environment we think investors will be forced to look for alternative stores of value now gold could play that and we just think that in a digital world bitcoin has many of similar characteristics to gold that could lead investors to consider it as a store of value. And all they have to do is consider it and the impact on the price will be considerable. So Bitcoin isn't the only cryptocurrency. So why Bitcoin and not and not others? Is it the size of that market? No, it isn't actually. I mean, that, that helps. And that's one of the reasons why we're able to get this exposure. But there are things, attributes inherent to the Bitcoin network that mean that it's more like gold. So what I mean by that is it has a fixed and limited supply. Now, that isn't the case with other cryptocurrencies. So the way to think about, you know, the way we think about it is in the 
fiat universe, you have fiat currencies like the pounds and dollars, and then you have gold, which sort of acts as your traditional store of value. In the digital universe, you have digital currencies, cryptocurrencies, and that's probably likely in the near future to be joined by digital pounds and digital dollars. But in that world, Bitcoin is unique in its role as a store of value and a potential digital gold. I guess Bitcoin has been around now for, for what, just a little little over a decade, around about a decade. And how much do you feel confident in drawing on the data that there is over that decade? Or, or is the thesis kind of just more qualitative in, in terms of what you said? Yeah, I mean, it, it has to be more qualitative. It's been around 12 years, but in reality, there isn't enough statistically significant data to draw those conclusions. I mean, there are interesting correlations. At times, Bitcoin's been more correlated to risk assets. That was certainly the case in March of this year, as were other safe assets like gold and and government bonds, as all assets sold off. But what really caught our attention was the increasing correlation with gold. And that, that isn't a correlation that is now statistically significant enough for us to draw conclusions, but it was increasing. Another interesting correlation is correlation with negative yielding debt. But in reality, it has to be qualitative because there isn't really enough data to do it. But I mean, if you were looking to backtest it, Bitcoin's returns have been so extraordinary that unless you have a portfolio with a very high sharp ratio, so the return for the level of, of risk, Bitcoin adds, improves the sharp ratio of pretty much every portfolio. But that's because the return has been so extraordinary because the volatility is obviously very high. So I guess the fact that you need to rely more on qualitative data, I guess, would probably withdraw more sort of quant type approaches from from looking in this area. So I guess you're not likely to see the price pushed up by those sorts of approaches piling in, though clearly the data would probably tell them to pile in <laughs> if they if they trusted it. So you, you are sort of relying more on the actions of individual investors and, and other institutions coming in to, to push that price up in the scenario you mentioned. We think so. A core part of, of the case is you're going to see increasing institutional adoption. And that institutional adoption of Bitcoin is likely to come with the narrative of digital gold. And you're seeing that from prominent Wall Street Wall Street banks. So JP Morgan have come out with a with a piece with a price target of 146,000 a Bitcoin, and that compares it to gold. And other what we would call mainstream institutions are doing that. You know, there are other ways of valuing Bitcoin, but I think for us the case is it becoming a digital gold. So comparisons with gold makes sense. But I guess the difference with gold is, so someone owns a block of gold, they know they own a block of gold, it's probably in a safe somewhere in a bank, and they know exactly how to access it. With the move to digital, there's there's been various quite funny stories, I guess, about people forgetting their passwords or losing their, their hard drive and, and losing access to their Bitcoin. So how big a risk is that to this whole thesis? It's a risk, but the Bitcoin ecosystem and industry the financial industry supporting it has matured a lot over the last three or four years. It's matured at an incredible pace, really. So, I mean, a lot of those stories you'll hear are very early adopters. And that's when you owned you owned Bitcoin through effectively personally, personally. So you had your private key. And if you lost that private key, you've lost your Bitcoin. But that's not really the case anymore. There are institutional grade custody solutions. There are institutional grade funds. So the industry has moved on from that. 
Okay, that's, that's that's a relief. I was I was just going to check that you'd written your password down, or maybe tattooed it on your arm or something. But it sounds like <laughs> sounds like thankfully. See, this 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 is an important point. So, Ruffer don't own Bitcoin. Ruffer portfolios don't own Bitcoin. We have exposure to Bitcoin through a fund. We don't have to take on that risk ourselves. And clearly, there's risks there, but you do your due diligence on the, on the fund, the custodian, etc., as you would do a normal investment. Yeah, and, and and talking practicalities, then I guess I mean that does seem one area that's moved forward quite a lot in the last year or so from things that I've read. I mean, if we're sort of tracking institutional adoption of Bitcoin, obviously the investment thesis is one thing, but the sheer practicality of it is another. And it certainly seems to me that, like you say, some of those institutional grade solutions have really moved forward quite a lot in the last year, and, and maybe that's something that's driving and will continue to drive a little bit more adoption. Yeah, you would you would think so. There's now institutional quality custody with Coinbase. Gemini, Fidelity. Fidelity have their own digital assets division. They were uh, an early mover in the space. There are multiple exchange traded products. There's a highly liquid, transparent futures market. There's an options market alongside it. JP Morgan, private equity have made investments in digital asset platforms. In January of this year, you're seeing federal bank charters being given to banks to, to issue and, and, and settle digital assets. So it is, I think, We've first gained our exposure in November, and even since November, the developments have been sort of breakneck. It really is. It really is moving quickly. Yeah, and to me, it's it's from what I've read. It seems to be that the lack of firm regulatory approval in the US is what's held things back a little bit in terms of developing more. So, I mean, do you think that's something that's going to going to change in the US, and that maybe usher in more ETFs and, and a bit more opening up? Yeah, yes, we think so. I mean, central to this thesis is regulation going down the path of engendering more trust in, in, in the asset. So effectively, the way we've described it is, you know, forcing the bad actors out of Bitcoin. We know regulation can take two ways. It could either clamp down and cut down on digital assets and, and cryptocurrencies, or it could effectively force out the bad actors out of those cryptocurrencies, build trust in the asset base and build a solid foundation for what could potentially be a digital future of finance. You're right, there is a little bit of, dare I say, dodginess, spamminess to some aspects of it. Like if I see anyone on Twitter who has some crypto in their bio, I just, you know, steer, steer well clear of it. And you've ever gone down Bitcoin YouTube rabbit holes, you know, it, yeah, it's, it's not entirely um, rational stuff there. Do you find that that's less now than in 2017? Yeah, probably actually. Yeah, I think I think that probably peaked out maybe back in that last boom. Yeah, maybe you're right. Yeah, I, I certainly this time around don't feel the rhetoric around it, I think, does feel a bit different. It's certainly what it feels like to us. It feels more professionalised. Is it something then you considered for a while and then just just the timing that's been the recent thing? Or, or did the investment thesis come together at the same time as the practicalities? It's something we've had on our radar for a while. You know, a firm that's um, uh, worried about inflation, as we have been for some time, is going to think of assets that can perform, think about assets that can perform in that in inflationary world. But in reality, it relied upon the industry developing with it. So it was interesting in 2017, but it was uninvestable for an institution, really. Uh, you didn't have the custody. You didn't have all the service providers around it that can allow institutions to invest in Bitcoin. And then really, it was the combination of the acceleration of those inflationary trends post March, April of this year, which really intensified, 
and the acceleration of the maturing of Bitcoin as an asset class that led us to, I would say, seriously consider it. And what sort of time, when we talk about sort of regulation, hopefully eventually being supportive and ensuring that the, the asset class, I guess, doesn't have a bad name, do you have a sort of thesis on time frame for that to happen? Or clearly there's lots of, lots of governments thinking about it now. How quickly will that flow through? I think given the speed that things are moving, it probably will happen quickly. Perhaps it, it would have been further out in the future, but just the speed with which institutions are willing and, and want to adopt this as their asset class will probably mean that the regulations will probably have to, to come along with it. And really, that's what we see in, in the US. Interestingly, the new head of the SEC, someone called Gary Gensler, I, I believe, and, and he taught a crypto class at MIT. So he is steeped in crypto. And I think it's the head, the new head of the CFTC is, is the same. So you would expect that this SEC administration will certainly be looking at looking at it and regulations will likely follow. Would that unlock things like, for example, USITS funds, funds that are governed by USITS regulations, would that permit them to invest in it? Because from what I understood, that it was would just be off the table at the moment for funds that were governed by those regulations in particular. P potentially. And we imagine that's where we will get to, the road to getting there. We don't know. And in terms of sort of practicalities, I guess practicalities of gaining and removing exposure depends a bit on how you're accessing the exposure. So costs of transacting and things presumably just depends on the route that you've taken to gain the exposure. Yeah, so this is this is really interesting, actually, because you might have thought that it would be difficult to transact. It might not be that liquid or the cost would be high. And that our experience is that has not been the case at all. So in terms, if we look at the costs, our exposure to Bitcoin through a fund, if you include transaction costs and custody, is no different really to any other asset class. Wow. It's not out the range of any other asset class. And in terms of transacting, we have actually sold some of our position, the manager sold some of our position, primarily to test this out. It's no good taking this position if you can then never sell it. So we, ha we, ha we have sold some and we were able to just sell $100 million in a couple of days. So it was quick. Fantastic. So I guess if we then sort of look to the future, do you think cryptocurrency as a, an asset class will develop into its own? Will it be cryptocurrency, I guess, or will it be Bitcoin, do you think? It's a really difficult question. Probably one I'm not completely equipped to answer. Cryptocurrency, the problem with cryptocurrency is that it is hard for a currency to be outside of state control. So if by cryptocurrency we mean digital pounds or digital dollars, that's definitely coming. Who knows the time frame, but that's coming. Now, one of the reasons, uh, one of the risks around Bitcoin previously was that simply it couldn't be allowed, it wouldn't be able to be allowed to exist because it can't exist outside of, of, of government control because the, the state would effectively lose its power of seniorage. But given that Bitcoin is not really developing into a sort of transactable currency, and is becoming maybe a, a store of value, we think the window of opportunity for Bitcoin to exist in a digital world, having been quite narrow about three or four years ago, is now widening. We think there's a very good chance now that actually Bitcoin can be that digital gold in and amongst um, digital dollars and digital pounds. That's super interesting because you're actually saying that sort of depends on it not becoming 
a transactable currency because then it will be allowed to remain. That That isn't an argument I've heard before. And that is super interesting because obviously you talk to some of the sort of more bullish people on Bitcoin, shall we say, and they'll be they'll say, oh, well, in the future, everyone will have a Bitcoin wallet. You'll be ordering your pizzas with Bitcoin. You'll be paying your car insurance using Bitcoin or something like that, which is obviously quite a futuristic take, to put it mildly, might happen. I don't know, but it was, that seems like a bit of a stretch. But actually, you're saying it, it doesn't require that. And actually, that might even be negative because governments would, would stamp it out if it went like that. Possibly, yeah. I saw something today so about announcement Visa made, which is effectively that they will allow the ownership of, of Bitcoin and allow you to transact back into your fiat currency, but use Bitcoin as sort of part of your wallet. So that's interesting. And we think that it potentially could be a bit like that, but with digital dollars. We might not have time for it on this podcast, but there's a really interesting sort of geopolitical angle to this of why the digital asset ecosystem in the US will potentially be allowed to, to exist. And that's because the US and the West are years behind China in terms of developing their digital currency. China is already testing it in a number of cities. It's planning on using digital RMB at the Winter Olympics in 2022, if they happen. The US and the West are are miles behind. They're still in the, the sort of conference phase when they're talking about digital currencies. Now, what is a way for Western governments to jumpstart that process? And that would be to harness all the innovation and all the the developments that have been going on in the private sector in the digital asset space to help them create their digital dollar. And that would be consistent with how the US has really treated innovation. It's been a a combination between private and, and, and public sector. Yeah, that, that is um, that is really fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Well, let, why don't we take a little bit of a pivot again and, and just talk a little bit about risks, I guess, because fascinating thesis, obviously, the world doesn't always turn out exactly how we think. And we've already touched on a few risks, uh, which you're saying are less than they've been in the past. But I mean, how are you seeing the risks of, of that sort of position from, from here? The main risk to the investment is the regulatory direction goes full circle. And it just, you know, we spoke about regulatory action clamping down or building trust. And if it goes on the clamping down, then that could be significant. We don't think Bitcoin will necessarily disappear. But if it can't become an institutional asset class, then that thesis of it becoming digital gold for the mainstream will break. So that's clearly a risk. Now, there are lots of smaller risks, broader, a a cyber attack, you know, risks that we all deal with on a day to day basis, but they aren't really existential risks. So that's with Bitcoin as an asset class, macro risks, I mean, if there's no need for, if we don't move into this inflationary world, if we suddenly, we sort of characterized it, if you sort of have a Volcker-like turn at the Fed where interest rates are hiked considerably and we go to positive real rates, that will clearly be difficult for all financial assets, but particularly gold and Bitcoin as, as that digital gold. So that's the sort of macro risk. If the macro trends that we see of greater government spending and permissive monetary policy are wrong, then this adoption of, of Bitcoin will probably stall. And, and in terms of that adoption to, to digital gold, the potential adoption to digital gold, what, what sort of timeline do you think we find out about that? And what some of the milestones that people could watch out for either way that could be signposting that that's transitioning successfully or is going the other way? So I think the time is now. So it's over the next couple of years. The macro conditions are such that the ground is, is fertile for this to happen now. And if it doesn't, it's not to say it won't happen in the future, but if not now, then when? And we think that's that's a valid question. In terms of milestones, 
you're seeing new corporates or new institutions making their positions public weekly or, or monthly. So we, we would expect that to continue. One area that I, I know we focus on a lot when we, we speak to investment managers and when we're thinking about sort of investment approaches, ESG, environmental, social and, and governance issues. So what's your sort of ESG assessment of Bitcoin? It's a very important issue, not least because ESG as a topic is front of centre, but also Bitcoin's reputation isn't necessarily what it is. So if I take the E side, where it's perhaps, because actually there's a good story on, on, on S, which I'll come to, but on the E side, the, the main thing, to, so, so Bitcoin mining is energy intensive. We know that. But what we would say is that 90% of Bitcoin supply that will ever be mined has been mined. Now, this in itself doesn't mean very much because the network still needs to be maintained and transactions verified. But if we are right about Bitcoin becoming a store of value for institutions, you would probably expect transactions by number of Bitcoins to go down as they become a cornerstone of portfolios. So it will require less electricity. But from where we are today, we understand there are concerns here. Bitcoin is energy intensive. When we think about it, because we think about it, you know, we value it relative to gold. We think about thinking about it environmentally relative to gold also makes some sense. So comparisons with the gold mining industry are that Bitcoin consumes 40% of the energy consumed by the gold mining industry. So it's less than gold mining. And in practice, Bitcoin mining the, is profitable. And to be profitable, you need cheap energy. So it is not fixed on location, it moves to where it can find the cheapest energy. Quite often, that can be stranded renewables. Think unused hydroelectric plants in Chinese ghost cities, or cold temperatures, which are also very helpful in Northern Europe, and using natural gas. But also, we can see that sometimes the cheapest energy is also Chinese coal. So it's hard to know exactly how much of the energy used for mining Bitcoin is renewable. We've seen Estimates ranging from 30% to 70%, which almost are so wide they make them meaningless. But even if you take 30% as the lower bound of that, that's okay. And we think that will change over time as it becomes institutionalized. Now, if you think about the physical impact on the world, it's a lot less. So gold mining scars the earth. It changes the earth's crust. It can destroy habitats, tailings, dams, etc. You don't have that with Bitcoin, it being digital. So that's the E side, and it should provide some comfort. On the social side, now we think this is really interesting because this is where you get some asymmetry to the investment case because the reality versus the reputation, there's a disconnect there. So its reputation is one of use in illicit activity. That's the standard refrain with Bitcoin. It's just used for criminals. But in reality... That's not the case. It represents less than 1% of transactions in recent years. It is dwarfed by the use of cash for such purposes. Um, it estimated that you know, for every $1 of Bitcoin, it can be $250 of cash for, for, for laundering. Bitcoin is a, is a terrible, terrible instrument to, to use in criminal activity. It is permanently, the record of that transaction is permanently on that public blockchain. So if you were to use it for a criminal activity, you cannot erase that. And that's part of this drive to, to, to force bad actors out of Bitcoin that I mentioned earlier. So this regulatory drive is that there are now blockchain analytic firms working with governments, working with law enforcement, 
to track these what they think are illicit transactions. And Bitcoin is not anonymous; it's pseudonymous, and that means it can be tracked. And the technology is developing to track it. So, versus cash, it doesn't compare. Cool. Joss, this has just been uh, the most fascinating conversation. We could go on forever and ever and ever, but we're kind of moving to try and wrap up now. So I guess just stepping back, I mean, what's just one thing you'd want the listeners to try and take away from this whole conversation on Bitcoin? So I think, that Dan, you've highlighted it. Debate on Bitcoin is ferociously polarized. And I think it's possible now to have this conversation without it getting becoming polarized. You know, you wouldn't know it from what you read, but Bitcoin is, is not the best thing in the world. It's not, or it's probably not the worst thing in the world. It's an interesting emerging asset class that could offer investors protection in an inflationary world, which they're not positioned for. And for that, we think that it's deserving of a small allocation in, in, in a multi-asset portfolio. We think it fits very well. Fantastic. And, and Joss, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing generally? The most underappreciated is being able to think along multiple timeframes and position accordingly. It's one of the hardest things to do. Our industry is set up to only think about the near term. And actually, as an investor, that also gives you the opportunity. If the industry is set up to think about the near term, there are opportunities thinking on different time horizons. And that's really what we're we're trying to do with this asset class. Just finally then, where can listeners find you, see any material that you release and those sort of things? Do you want to give a, a quick plug for any any thought pieces or papers or reference material that you've got there? Yes, I'd love to. So it's on our website, www.ruffer.co.uk. And we have a whole section called Thinking, where we publish a range of research and, and thought pieces. I was about to ask what was in that section, but I guess. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. So we, so we also produce uh, a Ruffer review annually. Uh, and, and the latest version is just about to be released. Uh, and this contains articles and essays produced by people right across Ruffer from Henry Maxey, our CIO, Jamie Downhauser, our economist, to some of our talent, talented graduates and associates as well. Uh, and that's coming out in, in the next month. And you'll be able to find that in, in the same bit. Fantastic. Well, we'll link to that in the show notes. Joss, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a really, really fascinating conversation. Thanks. Good. Thank you very much. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. Please join us again next week for another debate. I don't know. I don't know why I said debate. Then sorry. How do we do <laughs> that? Episode, something like that. Either way, fine. Whatever. <laughs> cool. All right. Done. <laughs> Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.